Thank you for watching NTD Business coming up tonight. Sam Bankman-Fried pleads not guilty to all eight counts against him. This sets off a lengthy legal battle with Bankman-Fried's freedom on the line. Kentucky putting big banks on notice, saying if they don't stop boycotting fossil fuel companies, the state will pull its money out. And chaos in the House of Representatives as Majority Leader Kevin McCarthy fails to get enough votes to become House Speaker after two rounds of voting. That and much more coming up on NTD Business. Great to have you with us. Don Ma here. The new session of Congress is in an unprecedented holding pattern right now. So far today, Representative Kevin McCarthy has failed to get enough votes to be named House Speaker. To win the Speaker role, a candidate needs 218 votes or a simple majority. Republicans hold 222 seats, so McCarthy can only afford to lose about four votes from his party. A small group of hardline conservatives are casting votes for Representative Andy Biggs from Arizona or others. Enough of them have done that to make it impossible for McCarthy to win. The House cannot move on to other matters until it has selected a speaker. Sam Bankman-Fried, commonly known as SBF, pleaded not guilty in court today. He's been charged with what could be the largest financial crime in the history of human civilization. If he is found guilty, he could potentially be sent to prison for the next 115 years. SBF was the former CEO of cryptocurrency exchange FTX, which is now bankrupt. People put billions of dollars of their own money into FTX, and he allegedly stole many of those billions using the exchange as his own personal piggy bank. That's the phrase the SEC used. Prosecutors charged him with eight criminal counts. These counts include wire fraud and conspiracy by misusing customer funds. SBF has pleaded not guilty to every single one of these counts. And earlier, we spoke to former assistant U.S. attorney Kevin O'Brien. He says that pleading not guilty is, is actually a good strategy because it keeps all of his options open. It's totally conventional to plead not guilty. It would be a shock if anyone in his kind of situation would do otherwise. If he were to plead guilty now, he really wouldn't know the things that were in store for him in terms of sentencing. Um, like, like I said, he hasn't gotten any discovery. He doesn't know all the governments or any of the, or, or, or very, a very small uh, quantum, one can assume, of the evidence the government has. If SBF were to immediately plead guilty, it would be like confessing without fully knowing what exactly he's confessing to. And also, if SBF were to plead guilty today, the government could even immediately send him to prison. Now, of course, we assume SBF doesn't want to go to prison. He described his experience at prison in the Bahamas as maddening and disgusting. He says the most intolerable part was the lack of internet and phone access. But even if he really did all the things he's accused of, it may still take a long time before he's actually in a prison cell. In the case of Enron, it took five years for the head of the corrupt company to have a scheduled sentencing. In the case of Elizabeth Holmes, who cheated patients with her fake blood testing company, it took around seven years. Former assistant U.S. attorney Kevin O'Brien says SBF's sentencing will also be a long ways off. This is largely due to the size and complexity of the case. The government has to produce all of the evidence, all of the, I'm sure, tens if not hundreds of thousands of emails that they've gathered, 
all that has to be produced to the defense, and the defense gets the opportunity to digest it and do follow-up and make motions based on all the information to try to get the charges dismissed or reduced. Finally, you have a trial date, and you have to select a jury, assuming he uh, wants a jury trial. All this could take several years easily. It's impossible to know how long it could take, but according to O'Brien's experience at the Department of Justice, he thinks it could be anywhere between two to three years. And in that time, SBF will basically be free on bail as long as he keeps authorities informed on where he is. He's been out on $250 million bail since late December. Attorney Blake Harris says the process is supposed to be long. The government designed it this way to protect the integrity of the legal process. In the United States, under the U.S. Constitution, as a defendant, you have certain rights. The prosecutor wants to make sure that none of those rights are violated. They want to do this case one time. They want to do it the right way and make sure that after the case is over, SBF can't claim that he didn't receive proper due process. SBF's trial date is October 2nd, around nine months from today. His co-executives, Caroline Ellison, the CEO of Alameda Research, and Gary Wong, the CTO of FTX, have pleaded guilty to their own charges. They'll be testifying against SBF in court. We'll keep you updated as the case develops. And moving on, Kentucky is the latest state to go after banks deemed hostile to the fossil fuel industry. The state's treasurer today put 11 banks on notice, including BlackRock, J.P. Morgan, and Citigroup. She said the banks are boycotting fossil fuel companies, and if they don't stop, Kentucky could start divesting from the firms. Fossil fuels are a big part of Kentucky's economy. The treasurer told Fox Business that Kentucky refuses to fund the ideological boycotts of its own fossil fuel industry with the hard-earned taxes and pensions of Kentucky citizens. This is the latest in the Republican fight against the ESG movement. ESG stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance. It's like a credit score. Companies with good ESG scores have an easier time getting financing. Bad scores makes it harder. Proponents view it as a way to force companies to comply with ESG standards and speed up the transition to renewable energy. But critics argue it's bad for companies and investors. And we reached out to BlackRock. It said... It is not boycott energy companies, although it did not say anything about fossil fuel companies in particular. It said its only agenda is delivering the best financial results for clients. And now joining me live to talk about Kentucky's decision is Will Hilde. He's the executive director at Consumers Research. Now, Will, in the big picture, the grand scheme of things, how significant is this move by Kentucky's treasurer? Well, I, I think it's very, uh, very significant because you're seeing an ever-increasing number of states who are tired of the ESG agenda being pushed by fat cat Wall Street executives. And they're saying, no, you're not going to use our pension dollars. You're not going to use our bond issuance dollars. You're not going to use the money that our state puts in trust with your bank to attack our state's underlying economy and industries. And that can be everything from fossil fuels to mining to manufacturing. All of these industries are hurt by the ESG agenda. And you noted that it hurts companies and shareholders, but it also hurts consumers as well because it raises prices. And for all these reasons, you're seeing a number of states, not just Kentucky, but Louisiana, Florida, Texas, push back on this insane agenda. Now, how exactly do these banks' ESG investing impact people in Kentucky? 
It's a great question. Well, by pushing these companies from taking their eye off the ball, focusing on delivering high quality goods at reasonable prices to their consumers and onto progressive far left politics, which is really what ESG is, it's just a stocking horse for the Democratic Party platform. It raises costs for consumers because these companies have to focus on serving the needs of people like Larry Fink rather than figuring out how to serve their customers. But I guess the question is, how does the ESG funds perform compared to non-ESG funds? Well, when you look at what ESG investing really is, it really just means being overweight the tech sector. So during the momentum trading investing of the last four to six years during the run-up in, in, with low uh, low cost of borrowing, you know, easy liquidity, it did okay. It didn't outperform the market that well. But now that we have higher inflation, now that rates are coming up, it is crashing and burning at the same time. The same energy companies that the ESG was designed to punish are doing better than ever. So over the long haul, ESG is not a great investment strategy. And in BlackRock's defense, in its recent testimony in Texas, it said that it's a significant investor in many energy companies like ExxonMobil and Occidental Petroleum. Well, what do you say to that? Certainly. Well, the allegation here has never been a boycott. That is a red herring shell game that Larry Fink and BlackRock like to play. The point here is that they take assets that do not belong to them, such as pension assets for the state of Kentucky, for example. Those include assets like shares of Exxon and Occidental Petroleum. And then they use those shares to push an agenda that has nothing to do with shareholder return or serving customers. They push them onto bizarre net zero targets that are unattainable and very expensive. And they push them in directions of hiring more DEI uh, staff and uh, you know going along with whatever the, the sort of flavor of the week is for the Democratic Party. And again, these, th take, these things take the focus of Exxon and Occidental off of what they're supposed to be doing which is delivering a consistent, reliable, cheap, affordable energy supply for the United States and on to, again, Larry Fink and Democratic Party politics. So it's not about so much that they boycott the fossil fuel industry. It's that they punish it. They, they sanction it and they push it in directions that it shouldn't be going. Mm, I see. Now, Will, earlier you said that what Kentucky did is significant. So I want to ask you, where do you think this trend of ESG investment is headed in 2023? Well, I think at the end of 2023, you're going to see a lot less of it. Uh, states like Kentucky, others like Florida, Texas, Louisiana, West Virginia, there's an ever-growing number of states who are wise to the game that Larry Fink and BlackRock and others are playing. And they're saying, we've had enough. You're not going to use our money to undermine our own interests. And so that's going to continue through, through 2023. I think the legislative sessions at the states during Q1 and Q2 of this year are going to be very momentous. You're going to see a lot of legislation, anti-ESG legislation passed at the state level. And by the end of this, I think you will see uh, the ESG movement in full retreat because it's really an abrogation of the fiduciary duty. And, and these, these uh, industry players need to be put on notice that they don't serve their own interests, they serve their, their, their clients' interests. Okay, we will see. Thank you very much, Will, Consumers Research. Pleasure speaking to you. Thank you for having me. And on to Wall Street, stocks ended lower on the first trading day of 2023. The Dow fell 11 points, mostly unchanged. S&P lost 15 points or four tenths of a percent. The Nasdaq dropped 80 points or eight tenths of a percent. And an update from Tesla. The electric car maker said Monday it sold a record 1.3 million vehicles last year. But the number fell short of CEO Elon Musk's goal to grow the company's sales by 50% nearly every year. For that, 1.4 million uh, total was needed. 
Still, sales grew 40% year-over-year, while production climbed 47%. Tesla didn't roll out any new models last year and is facing competition from legacy automakers plus EV startups. But Musk has promised to start producing the long-awaited Cybertruck this year. Besides the electric pickup, Tesla has also started delivering its electric semis. That's despite production slowdowns at its Shanghai factory. As China copes with the COVID-19 surge, the company saw its worst-ever stock decline in 2022, more than triple the drop in the S&P 500. And Tesla stocks fell 12% today. Elon Musk's rocket firm SpaceX is raising $750 million in a new round of funding, which values the company at $137 billion. This is according to CNBC. SpaceX raised nearly $1.7 billion back in June. Backers in the new round reportedly include investor Andreessen Horowitz, who also put money into Musk's Twitter buyout deal. The rocket company has launched numerous cargo payloads and sent astronauts to the International Space Station. Its Starlink unit operates thousands of satellites providing internet services from orbit. It's looking to generate revenue from applications such as providing high-speed internet to airlines. SpaceX competes with private rivals, including Amazon founder Jeff Bezos' Blue Origin. And economists with some major global banks are expecting a recession. This is according to a recent Wall Street Journal survey with 23 large financial institutions. Two-thirds of them say it could happen this year. The economists that predict a recession expect consumer spending to weaken as an aggressive Federal Reserve hikes interest rates. Most of the economists surveyed think unemployment will peak above 5% this year. Several million Americans would lose their jobs if that happened. The Fed has raised interest rates from near zero in March 2022 to between 4.24 and 4.5% today. And moving on to China, the country is striving for economic recovery in 2023 after the country was battered by its zero COVID policy last year. Now, to do that, China's economic top economic planner says it's increasing domestic consumption. China's deputy chairman of the National Development and Reform Commission told state media that government investment and incentives will be used to drive up social investment. He said, quote, we must increase the revenue of urban and rural households. Support should be given to low and medium income families who are more willing to spend but affected more by the pandemic. He believes that inadequate overall demand is the main factor holding back the economy. And earlier, I spoke with Brian McCarthy to discuss China's economic outlook for 2023. He's the chief strategist at macroeconomic advisor firm MacroLens. Thanks for joining me, Brian. Just give us your take. What's your outlook for 2023 for China's economy? Sure. Uh, I think we can expect a fairly rapid bounce back. Uh, you know, the COVID reopening is uh, is happening apace. Uh, I, I do think the uh, lifting of travel restrictions as of uh, you know next week um, is really the the final signal that Chinese officialdom is done with COVID. Uh, you know, uh, being a being a thing that restricts economic activity. So obviously, they're dealing with. Um, outbreaks of, of significant magnitude in many of the large metropolitan centers. But, you know, we're hearing Chinese health officials say as many as 50, 60, 70 percent of the citizenry in places like Shanghai could be getting infected in this wave. It just simply can't last that long at that, at that pace of, of transmission. So 
you know, potential um, human tragedy in terms of the number of lives lost. We won't get statistics on that. We've all seen the anecdotes of very crowded emergency rooms and crematorium, you know, going going 24-7. Uh, it's a tragedy what's happening, but it's not going to have economic ramifications because it's going to be over in a matter of weeks, I, I would think. Um, so you will get... We have an early Chinese New Year this year uh, that will be done by the end of January, and you're going to get China back to work in early February. So you'll see a, uh, a pretty significant bounce in the economic data for Q1 and Q2, I would think. So, Brian, basically you're saying because China reopened, uh, it, it's easing the zero COVID policy. That is the main reason to why you think China will have a speedy recovery in its economy. Yes. Now, I want to be completely clear. The, 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 the phrase lockdown is overused, okay? China has not been in a lockdown for the last, you know, two and a half years. They have had rolling local closures, most notably in, in Xi'an and Shanghai earlier this year. Um, I think, I think what, one of the things that triggered the, uh, the reopening was that they were getting over overwhelmed even the, the you just you can't this, this omicron was not suppressible uh in in a winter season uh so they were going to get overwhelmed anyway and they lifted the policy and 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 you know have decided to let it rip um so that's got ramifications for healthcare. but again these lockdowns were i would say the last three to four months they started to become very very disruptive uh, the other thing that I think triggered the change in policy was this closed loop thing was starting to break down. So it's been three or four months of disruption. There'll be another month of disruption in January that will lift. You'll get three or four months of a burst in the, the economic activity. And then by the middle of next year, we'll be back to the story we're in the middle of, the, of 2022, which is China's in a massive housing bust. Their economic model is at an end, and they don't really have any any plan to pivot to a more consumption-based, you know, economy or anything else. So I'm looking for, you know, three to four months of disruption. We've had three to four months of comeback activity, and then we settle down into a very low growth rate. I do not think anything that's going on in China will have any effect on U.S. inflation rate, Fed policy, or any of that. It, this, is, this is, you know, marginal stuff we're talking about from the Federal Reserve's perspective. And Brian, on that point, how will U.S. investment in China look like in 2023? Do you think investors are sort of waiting for the economy to steady? You know, I think the, uh, the investment inflow picture is much like, uh, you know, the picture with the economic data. So, you know, we've seen a consistent slowdown in Chinese economic statistics, whether it's industrial production, fixed asset investment, retail sales, for the better part of a decade now, fairly consistently. And we know there's been a very significant bust in the real estate market. So you've seen breaks in those data where they look like they've decelerated rapidly at times, but it's impossible to tease out what really has been these rolling lockdowns, what has been just the longer term trends towards slower growth, and what you can attribute to the property bust. And I would say as regards to uh, multinational investments in China, while when there are lockdowns happening, it's very easy to point to lockdowns as something that's making one wary about doing business in China. But you lift the lockdowns, there's still another list of things making people wary about doing business in China. So, you know, I don't think there's going to be a major sea change in how people view uh, the risks and opportunities of doing business in China. That calculus is just not as attractive as it was three or four years ago. Brian McCarthy, Chief Strategist, MacroLens, thank you. Thanks very much. And taking a break now, but if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at business at ntd.com. 
Still to come, donations surging for an NFL player's toy drive after he collapsed on the field. And a passenger suing Southwest Airlines over the travel chaos last week. Why is he taking legal action? That and more coming up on NTD Business. Welcome back. Donations for a toy drive saw a major surge after the NFL player who started a collapse on the field Monday night. Buffalo Bills' DeMar Hamlin launched the program in 2020. Just one hour after Hamlin was taken off the field in an ambulance, the fundraiser topped $74,000. has since soared to more than $4 million, with more than 150,000 people donating. 24-year-old Hamlin went into cardiac arrest following a tackle early in the game against the Cincinnati Bengals. The Bills say Hamlin's heartbeat was restored before he was taken to the hospital. Hamlin remains in critical condition. A passenger is suing Southwest Airlines, saying the carrier failed to provide refunds to stranded passengers after it canceled more than 15,000 flights last week. Southwest has promised to reimburse passengers for expenses. The plaintiff said he was supposed to fly from New Orleans to Portland, Oregon on December 27th. But the Dallas-based carrier only offered him credit after canceling his flight. He and his daughter were unable to book alternative travel. The plaintiff is seeking damages for passengers who were not reimbursed. The proposed class action lawsuit covers customers whose flights were canceled since December 24th. Southwest organizational structure and outdated flight scheduling software have been blamed for the meltdown. Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg called the disruptions unacceptable. And a new smart ball is giving rugby players and fans more data than before, live and in real time during a match. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the details on its capabilities. Sports data firm Sportable and sports equipment company Gilbert have made a smart rugby ball. It communicates with wireless beacons around the field. The ball can reveal player and team stats like kick distance, pass distance, and territory gained. You know, as a player, I was constantly looking for various ways of understanding myself better, understanding the environment that I was involved in a bit better, uh, and that I was able to make much better decisions much quicker. And I think through insights, through data. Habana is an ambassador for Sage, the business software company that is an insight partner on the SmartBall project. The GPS transmitters track the ball 20 times a second. It can produce live graphics of exactly what is happening on the field. It has a microchip inside that allows incredible insights and data to be relayed in real time, not only to audiences around the world, but to coaches, to teams, to players, and it gives some valuable insights into everything that is happening on the rugby field in real time. Players, coaching staff, and commentators are all able to take advantage of the data. The technology could also help end disputes. It can potentially help referees decide whether a ball was passed backwards or was it passed forwards. Did the momentum of the acceleration of the player mean that the ball traveled forward but was passed backwards? Um, you know, how quickly rucks develop, you know, how high a scrum off, for instance, kicks a ball. The microchip weighs around 0.3 ounces and doesn't affect the performance of the ball. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. 
And that's the latest from the NTD business team and myself, Don Ma. You can follow me on Twitter if you're there. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at business at ntd.com. That's all for today. Thank you for watching. We'll see you tomorrow.